and more than 1,600 cakes. Cakes. Cakes, cakes yeah. yeah. So the, yeah, the, if only they'd been uh, you know, handing out cakes. <laughs> People it's been, would be been... happy. I'm sick. Don't blame me. <laughs> It's Friday, March the 3rd, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Darich, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Barrel Organ War Criminal, and with me today is Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Debate Moderator. Yes, um, we're back uh, from, yes. uh, from a week of, uh, of, uh, of absence. A week uh, of lazing around, basically. Um, yeah. Not much happened, but... Uh, <laughs> well, uh, we wanted to do a, 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 sp- a yeah sort of provincial elections 101 this uh, this week, uh, but uh, too much has happened, so we're going to uh, push that to to next week. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you will uh, learn everything there is about uh, uh, the elections uh, in the next episode. Uh, but until now, the only thing you need to know is that uh, there is a, a debate on the radio today uh, with the I think 15 or 16. Uh, faction leaders of the Tweede Kamer, 16, I think. I think yes. 16, yes, yeah. yeah. So they um, will each get like, uh, yeah, on the radio, but they will each get like, as you say, seven and a half minutes uh, yeah, because debating it's time t- altogether. Yeah, because it's a two-hour debate, and yeah. I assume there will be news in between, and uh, yeah, uh, uh, Radio 1, knowing Radio 1 a little bit, they always have to uh, cut, uh, a break in the episode because uh, uh, some cyclist has fallen in the Tour de France or something. They're always yeah. uh, giving updates uh, uh, about a random yeah. sports and event. Ajax uh, is right, right back, has uh, broken his toe or something like that. It's like, yeah. Exactly. So yeah. assuming that they're not going to do this as they always do, then uh, there will be seven and a half minutes speaking time for every participant in this debate. Um, and you have to know that uh, we cannot vote for these people. Yes. <laughs> and they're going to debate on topics that the elections isn't about. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a little bit a uh, little bit strange, but um, this isn't the uh, the only debate uh, like this. Right. We have a number of them. In the in the in the in the coming weeks, um, we also will we will also have a debate. I think one or two days before the election uh, between Mark Rutte uh, and Edith Schippers, who is the uh, uh, the the number one candidate for the Senate of the VVD party, and um, GroenLinks leader and Labour leader uh, Jesse Klaver and Artje Kuiken. Um, and they're going to debate uh, the the four of them. Um, why? Because uh, yeah. uh, the VVD has uh, the campaign team of the VVD wants to want to have this duel between these two uh, parties, uh, and uh, yeah, the public broadcaster is going to uh, facilitate that. Yeah, uh, they're for just reasons that is very unclear. Cave into that. So we have a situation basically where we have two sets of elections coming up in two weeks' time. We have elections for the provincial for the provinces, the provincial assemblies, and elections for the water board. And the debate is actually about a completely different set of people who are directed because the Senate is indirectly elected by the provinces. We'll get into all this next week, but basically, yeah. This is the summary. (laughs) This is the summary, but this is the debate. Yeah, the the debate is about the Senate, even though people are not voting for the Senate at all. No, no, because it's an indirect election. Yes. Um, Yeah, so slightly curious. Yeah, and also I thought you would be heartened in the context of just uh, sounding off about debates by a a study that uh, was commissioned by by Harvard Business School, which concluded that uh, television and radio debates actually are a complete waste of time. 
Okay. Eventually. Wow. Uh, they, 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 they I am shocked, at, shocked <laughs> at this, uh, this conclusion. Yeah. Basically, they looked at 62 American and European uh, political uh, um, campaigns and the debates that were held during those campaigns and found that basically most voters had already made up their minds before they watched the debates who they were going to vote for. And it had very little influence on their behavior, which is obviously a disaster for political journalists because during election campaigns, um, everyone's constantly writing and talking about, about debates then analyzing debates and having debates about the debates and whether the debates will affect how people vote and it turns out they don't at all it's just a pure sideshow yeah yeah well um, um uh, there was a there was a debate between the um senator uh, the, the number one senate candidates at um also the public broadcaster on sunday and i uh, tuned in for five minutes or something and they were all uh, speaking, uh, you know, everyone was talking at the same time. They were yelling at each other, so you couldn't make out what they were saying or what they were debating about. So um, it is it is frustrating with such a fragmented political landscape, I guess, to sort of arrange a debate, a meaningful debate, because on the one hand, I guess you you, you don't want to, you know, uh, uh, put only two parties in the spotlight because we have so many to choose from. But on the other hand, if you just put all 16 of them on a stage, that also doesn't work. So, um, yeah, it is it is difficult, I guess, for uh, for journalists and for, um, uh, for TV broadcasts to find a sort of, um, yeah, a, 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 a format that works or that um, sort of justify... You know, you know, give justice to to the uh, political landscape, um, but still, I I think that the decisions that have been made right now are uh, are clearly not the right ones. Yeah, because yeah. there are too many problems with that. Yes. All right. Enough elections. Uh, yeah. Let's go to uh, let, let's go to an invasion, <laughs> an actual yeah, war. Yeah, um, let's cheer ourselves up with some news of uh, war and an invasion. <laughs> yeah, a, uh, a very enterprising um, barrel organ operator um, uh, made headlines by. It was a film that went viral on YouTube. Where basically he parked his Wurlitzer outside the Russian embassy and uh, it played the Ukrainian national anthem constantly. Yes, and, <laughs> and just just to the people who have been lucky enough uh, to have never been in the Netherlands, what yeah. is a barrel organ? Can you explain? a little bit yeah it's one of these sort of wind up um very dead organs that uh, the, that uh, people um bring out in the street during things like uh, koningsdag and uh, new year and uh, yes yeah, it's usually an old guy with the dressed up in uh, uh bizarre bizarre clothes who just stands by and, uh, <laughs> and, and cranks this organ and it plays terrible tunes usually actually they, these days they sort of uh, manage to remix likes of popular hits as uh, kind of a uh, world yeah. tunes as well um uh, and they park outside your local supermarket so you get an earful of this uh, awful noise as you're going shopping and uh, you expect people to give them money although really not to stop i think if it actually said on the side of the organ how much you needed to pay him to go away <laughs> i would i would willingly donate yeah. it never does yes. but anyway yes, they, yeah, yeah but this these is a are good... portable barrel organs often yeah. horse drawn <laughs> and yeah they make a lot of noise and um, um the idea is that it is a sort of traditional music uh, thing but yeah it just uh, it just uh, hurts the ears very much <laughs> and uh, I, I, I don't know anyone who actually admires them or likes to listen to them but um, yeah they, they keep popping up but at least if you want to protest invasions then uh, they finally have a, uh, a good usage uh, I guess so uh, we finally found a way to uh, to, uh, to, to, to make people appreciate um, uh, draaiorgels as they are known in Dutch <laughs> 
Um, so just put them in front of the Russian embassy, and um, yeah, hopefully this this will contribute to uh, to a good ending of uh, of the invasion. Yeah, or indeed take it further, as our good friend um, uh, Molly Quell suggests that they should actually just send a whole division of uh, Verlitzers across to Ukraine and uh, part <laughs> them on the front line, and it would drive the drive the Russians away. It could be yeah. could become the most uh, yeah the, the most uh, appalling weapon that uh, the Dutch have in their arsenal. So yeah, <laughs> this could, could kind of, actually work. Yeah, it was kind of appropriate. This uh, barrel yeah. organ was actually used in The Hague when it is uh, verging on a war crime to, to actually play one of these in the street. <laughs> in the city of peace and justice, <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. the peace was very much disturbed outside the Russian yeah. embassy. But, uh, Definitely, and the great yes. thing was that the police drove past at one point and they asked <laughs> yeah, the guy to stop. In the video. And then about <laughs> half an hour later, he just came back with his organ and carried on. And the police didn't bother <laughs> interrupting, him, interrupting him again. Yeah. <laughs> If the people show, if the if the police only showed up more often when someone puts that thing uh, outside uh, uh, on the market square or something, then uh, yeah, I would be a very happy happy citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think we will stay in the Hague because the uh, opf of the week finally comes from the Binnenhof Bowing. Uh, that's the uh, massive uh, six-year-long renovation of the centuries-old parliamentary complex in the Hague. Uh, and yeah, here on the podcast, we always assumed that this 500 million euro costing project would generate much more OPEF than uh, yeah it has actually done. So uh, we're just happy that finally we can announce a Binnenhof Bowing OPEF, right? Hooray! Um, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy about it. Um, <laughs> and it all started when the Telegraph reported this week that a, a true toilet war was waging behind the scenes at the renovation. Did, did uh, somebody Google, sorry? But did somebody park a barrel organ outside the toilets? Is this how this started? <laughs> they should do that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, a group of MPs uh, who oversee the renovation and are regularly asked uh, to give input on design decisions disagreed about the need for gender-neutral toilets in the uh, new complex. Some members wanted uh, the new Binnenhof to only have gender-neutral toilets, while others insisted on the traditional separation between men and women. The discussion, uh, which the Telegraph uh, quite characteristically described as a toilet war was uh, finally resolved when the uh, Rijksvastgoedbedrijf, that's uh, sort of the agency that uh, oversees all uh, government real estate um, and also carries out the renovation, proposed a very typical polder solution. The new complex will have uh, three types of toilet groups. One for men, one for women, and one gender-neutral uh, bath group of bathrooms. Um, and the toilet war echoed an incident that happened last year when the Tweede Kamer moved to its temporary building. Uh, the toilet groups weren't labeled there, so MPs started to fix uh, handwritten notes uh, with men or women on the doors. And this led to friction between the Socialist Party and Bijeen, who share a hallway in the complex um, because uh, the Bijeen people kept replacing the handwritten notes for one saying gender-neutral. Mm. I don't know how how they resolved this, but I'm sure there was a uh, a, a, a a dry orgel involved. Yeah, there was some kind of a polder solution, very definitely. Yeah, yeah. But it's, but it's good to see the hottest topic on Twitter has finally come to the Binnenhof as well. But, uh, yes. And, and, yeah, and the people are now political parties are now basically trolling each other in the yeah yeah in, that, in a very mature way uh, on the toilet doors, but through the medium of toilet doors. And and speaking of of hot situations at the Binnenhof, uh, the uh, the Hague Fire Department is uh, is angry at Mark Rutte because uh, his his prime ministerial office is also located in the Binnenhof, and he was supposed to have moved uh, six months ago, but he he just keeps uh, staying there at the Binnenhof. And one of the main reasons for the renovation is the uh, fire safety of the whole complex. It's practically a tinderbox, yeah. So uh, one spark and the whole complex is uh, goes up in 
flames, but Mark Rutte insists on staying there. And he uh, and also the municipality of The Hague recently gave him another one and a half year exemption. So, uh, yeah, the fire department is also mad at the municipality of The Hague now. So Right. Um, um, so, so, so Mark, states, Mark Rutte kind of playing chicken with the Hague's fire department, basically saying, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah." yeah. So, um, yeah, um, another heated, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> heated. Well, let's hope the debates don't get too heated in Mark Rutte's no, office no, exactly. because that sounds quite dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. This week brought us two reports into institutional failures on witness protection and gas drilling in Groningen. A painting by Van Gogh that got him chased out of Brabant sells for millions. And we tell you why the heroes of this year's Dutch Football Cup are threatening to boycott the final unless the Canfe Bay changes the date. Oh, I know what this is about. Yes, yeah. <laughs> afraid you do. Yeah. Stay tuned for that. And you haven't even mentioned the penis plant. So, uh, <laughs> oh, God, I forgot for about the penis plants. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, and stay tuned for the yeah. penis plants as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which the most definitely, important story yeah, of this week. Yeah, which should definitely be boycotted by the, uh, by the footballers of um, yeah, FC Spakenburg. <laughs> The Dutch Safety Board this week produced a damning report on the state of witness protection in criminal cases. In particular, the protection of three people connected to one case who were all shot dead in broad daylight. Nabil Bey was a crown witness against a widow Antahi, the chief suspect in the Marengo trial, into a series of gangland shootings. Bey's brother, Redouan, was killed in March 2018 when he went to a fake job interview allegedly set up by Tahi's gang. His lawyer, Dirk Viersum, was shot dead on his own doorstep 18 months later. And in July 2021... The investigative journalist Peter Eyre de Vries was killed in the streets of Amsterdam as he walked back to his car from a television interview. De Vries had been an advisor to Nabil Bey in the months before his death. The safety board found the protection system wasn't in step with the criminal investigation and the investigative role took priority and the result was that information about threats to witnesses was passed on too late in piecemeal fashion or just not at all. The risk to people associated with Tahi was consistently underestimated, even after the murder of Redouan Bey, the first victim, while warnings from outside were ignored. And the problems went all the way to the top of the prosecution service. Peter Schouten, a lawyer and friend of Peter Eyre de Vries, said the journalist might still be alive if the protection scheme had been properly run. And Honor de Jong, the lawyer for Nabil Bey, said his client had been the victim of, quote, a poisonous cocktail of naivety, incompetence and arrogance. Um, so, um, um... Who is to blame for all these failures in, in the system? Well, the safety board itself uh, doesn't draw conclusions or make judgments about who's to blame. That's not its job. Uh, but uh, other people had a very clear idea of who is to blame. And the safety board did identify huge structural problems within the prosecution service particularly. And the system was fragmented, basically. So the protection of Viersum and Nabil Bey was organised by the National Division. But Peter Eyre de Vries was allocated to his local prosecutor's office. There's mm. no joining up at all of information. Uh, Nabil Bey's family weren't off a protection after he agreed a plea bargain to turn Crown Witness against Tahi, even though they were assessed as being at high risk, and warnings about a threat to Defries' life also weren't passed on. So the pretty inescapable conclusion from the report uh, is that the whole system is in dire need of an overhaul. Royce Defries, the journalist's son, who's also uh, a lawyer, was pretty clear on where he thought the fault lies. He said he hoped the report to be a wake-up call to the prosecution service to take personal protection more seriously and to shake off its naivety. 
Yeah, and if you want to know more about uh, the whole Tahi case, um, I would recommend a uh, podcast called uh, The Tahi Podcast. Uh, uh, it was produced by uh, the Parole newspaper. Uh, it is really, really worth listening to if you want to know more about uh, um, uh, this particular case. But it is in Dutch, so yeah, you have to know that, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but it's definitely uh, 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 something to, to listen to if you want to know more. Um, but what did the police and the prosecution authorities have to to say about uh, all of this. Yeah, well, uh, Henk van Essen, the head of the National Police Division, he said he couldn't repair the pain and suffering caused to the victims' families, but he accepted that the police needed to get better at responding to the concerns of witnesses and sharing information. Uh, the head of the prosecution service, Geert van der Burg, is facing calls to resign, uh, among them from Royce de Vries, after he gave an interview to Newsier where he basically said there was no reason to be pessimistic about the willingness of his department to improve conditions, said a lot about uh, how much they wanted to improve things, but very little about what, how the failures um, might have um, come about uh, or contributed to uh, the uh, deaths of these three people. He said he was dealing with a merciless criminal organisation, but denied that his colleagues had been naive and he said well I thought was quite a startling thing he said the prosecution department is never naive but if you look at the decisions that were deemed appropriate at that time they were justified in a way that they couldn't be now which seems a lot of words basically to say we kind of didn't know what was going on yeah 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 exactly and didn't know what to do yeah um uh, and also, uh, we have, of course, the Justice Minister, Dilanya Silgers. Mm. Uh, what did she uh, have to say about all these filings? Because, after all, she is the one responsible for uh, the police departments and the uh, justice system. Yeah, she's ultimately responsible, of course, for witness protection as well. And uh, usually uh, quite happy to, uh, you know, uh, to to appear on camera. But this week, she's been conspicuous by her absence. She gave mm. a short written statement to Parliament, promising a more extensive reaction in two months' time. But uh, she did go on camera to answer questions the cabinet has promised more money for witness protection and Isilgus has talked in the past about expanding the witness protection program but the message from the safety board really is that it needs more than expansion it needs just a wholesale total reform because in essence it hasn't changed since it was set up following the assassination of Pimfort Town more than 20 years ago even mm. though obviously the threats and demands and challenges it faces have uh, changed quite a lot in the meantime so yeah, I mean, I mean, you pick out all kinds of things from this report, but I mean, it was things like, I mean, one detail there was a lot of focus on was that, for example, um, Petit de Fries, um, he was shot on his way back from uh, an interview on RTL um, uh, Boulevard, which is a kind of early evening um, talk show, gossip show um, that he regularly appeared on. Uh, the week before, he also appeared on the program, and a security guard in a car park noticed that he'd been followed by a guy with very distinctive tattoos uh, and mm. uh, passes on to the um, uh, uh, to, to the protection team the protection team looked at the footage they didn't see a guy with distinctive, distinctive tattoos so they kind of dismissed the message didn't pass it up the chain uh, even though you, know, you would think that they would pass any kind of tip or information up the chain yeah. uh, and uh, the next week Peter de Vries was assassinated in the street and when they reviewed the footage again they found the guy with distinct tattoos and one of the suspects in the in, in, uh, in the case around his murder uh, is, is uh, does have indeed distinctive tattoos hmm. so it was all kind of details like that so, but, but basically bits of, piece of information um, credible um, threats uh, where the information just got lost in the system I mean, even I mean Geer van der Burg said we didn't really know at the time we, un we, we didn't really 
realise uh, what kind of organisation we're dealing with. It was unprecedented for, for example, for a lawyer to be to be targeted by criminals. But I mean, Peter Schouten, who was you know, the, the, who was the lawyer colleague of Dirk Viersum, uh, who uh, who reacted uh, very critically to the OIM, he said that he himself had uh, had received a threat from Taki's uh, from people allegedly associated with Guido and Taki the year before Dirk Viersum was killed and that he was mm. actually given witness protection for a time. And he said that a you know, police car would go past my house every 20 minutes, and that was fine. But after a while, they kind of stopped driving past. And yeah. then t- two years later, Dick Viersum, who received very similar threats, got shot on his doorstep. So why it took so long for the prosecution service to cotton on to the fact that organized criminals were targeting lawyers is, uh, you know, is, an, is a question that uh, wasn't really adequately answered, I thought, by Geert van der Burg. Still a lot of questions to be answered, and um, yeah, um, um, I'm sure this is not uh, the last uh, investigation we will see in uh, in this case, and uh, in the case of all these uh, people as being assassinated by these drug criminals. Mm. The interests of the people of Groningen were systematically ignored by both the government and oil companies, and making money remained the dominant concern when natural gas extraction started to cause earthquakes. That is the conclusion of the Parliamentary Inquiry Commission's report on the Groninger gas extraction, which has taken two years and hundreds of interviews to complete. The chair of the commission, MP Tom van der Lee, said the worlds of the decision makers and the locals were miles apart, adding that the gas extraction has become an unprecedented system failure, with both the public and private sectors failing in their duties. The report describes that ministers were not properly informed, meaning that MPs, who for a large part rely on ministerial information, couldn't fulfill their role as guardians of the public interests properly. The damage, both material and mental, suffered by locals was consistently underestimated and the maximization of profit was always the guiding force. The report was presented in the village of Zeerijp in Groningen, where in 2018 an earthquake measuring 3.4 on the Richter scale led to the government's decision to completely phase out gas extraction in Groningen by this year. More than 1,600 quakes with a magnitude of 3.6 have hit Groningen since 1986, when the first quake was recorded. The Dutch state has earned more than 360 billion euros from the exploitation of the Groningen gas field since extraction began in 1963. Yeah. So again, kind of a situation, I guess, where the government or the authorities just didn't pay attention to the warnings of local people. I mean, so there's parallels here, I suppose, with the um, with the problems of the witness protection scheme. You basically have a bureaucracy that doesn't filter information very efficiently and doesn't act on it when it gets it. Yeah, not only yeah. that, but also um, uh, uh, like um, uh, the media, right? Journalism yeah. has also a duty in, in sort of... Um, uh, signaling these sort of problems and uh, of course they have done it at some point but uh, also also them haven't taken these the earthquake serious since 1986 so uh, that is what the report says it's not only um, uh, the blame is not only uh, uh, fully on the government but also on MPs also on on, on, on politics journalism as well yes, uh, yeah. the whole society um, and um, yeah hopefully we have a lot of lessons uh, to be learned from this um, Especially also if you take into account the child benefit scandal, which was, you know, has a, a lot of similarities, I think, yeah. in, um, uh, uh, in, 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 in the way that uh, this major problem wasn't um, 
wasn't identified by the media, by politicians, by everyone, and uh, with devastating results for the people involved. Yeah, absolutely. It's basically just a failure to follow up uh, reports that you get from the ground um, and take them to the top where they, you know, where, they where, where, where people should be. So the result, the people at the top never hear them, n- never listen to them, and never act on them. So yeah, yeah. and take them serious. And and, yeah. and 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 what 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 is also uh, what's also a similar thing is that uh, people uh, who you know victims of the child benefit scandal, but also victims of the earthquake scandal, um, when they went to court, um, the the the, judi- the judges they always relied on official reports by the government, by scientists, mm. by these um, uh, major oil companies, which they thought were reliable and were, you know, had a, uh, uh, and they they put too much weight and too much trust in 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 these voices, uh, and it's a similar thing. People, regular ordinary people, were just crushed by this machinery of, uh, of, of, of government, of, 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 of institutions which we thought were, you know, uh, doing decent work. And um, yeah, they were just not uh, taken seriously, unfortunately. And uh, yeah, now we have these major problems. Yeah. So what were the uh, reactions from the authorities to this inquiry? Yeah, well, first uh, we have Mining Minister Hans Felbrief, uh, who is uh, yeah, whose o- almost sole responsibility is dealing with mm. the uh, problems uh, caused by the Groninger gas extraction. Uh, he described the findings of the committee as extremely serious, and he said that if you read the facts one after another, it takes your breath away. Um, and he also added that he felt shame more than anything else. Um, then we have Prime Minister Mark Rutte, uh, who only uh, gave a short statement uh, saying that what began in the 1960s as something wonderful uh, because you know we 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 gained a lot of money from it that's yes. true yeah. um, and it all ended up in a nightmare in a nightmare for and it all ended up in a nightmare for the people of Groningen and um, yeah, there was a little bit of opeth because uh, the report was published on Friday, uh, and on Friday we all also always have the uh, press conference with the prime minister. And Mark Rutte refused to answer questions uh, of journalists about the uh, about the report, uh, and he said, you know, this report is two thousand pages thick. Uh, I haven't had a chance to properly, um, 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 in, yeah, no, read it and um, um, study it. Uh, so he basically refused to to give any sort of statements or, um, yeah, or, or 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 basically he refused to say anything about it. Um, which, uh, yeah, a lot of people interpret it as another blow for the people of Groningen because, you know, he is ultimately the one who is politically, uh, 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 he's politically speaking, the one who is ultimately responsible for everything. And, um, yeah, it feels a little bit disrespectful, I think, if you um, say, um, yeah, I'm not going to respond to this. You just have to wait for the formal response of the cabinet which can take two months uh, yeah it's, it's f- felt a little bit i mean on the one hand i understand that he says yeah no the two thousand pages i haven't read it i haven't studied it but you know he knows the conclusions that is only one sheet paper yeah you can you can you can you can say a lot about that as well and, yeah um, and know, it's not a surprise uh, either i mean you know the, this inquiry took place in the autumn and uh, you know the conclusions yeah. are basically a summary of well a lot of it is basically a summary of what the witnesses said during during the inquiry hearing so we all know you know basically what the contents of the report are um, yeah. if, if, if you've been following uh, what people actually said um, uh, and uh, yes yeah, so, so, so there's enough substance to go on for at least okay you, you can accept that uh, a sort of full 
response um, to the contents of the report may take a while, but he's, he's, he's certainly just to brush it away and say, oh, there's 2,000 pages and haven't started on it, is a bit disingenuous, I think, by Rutter. Yeah, to to, yeah, to sort of claim, so as if he knew, claim as if he knows nothing when you know yeah. the information is out there and has been for some time. I thought so too. And then we have uh, Shell and Exxon Mobile. They're, those are the companies that own uh, the the NOM, uh, the company that uh, operates the gas field uh, and who also made a lot of money from it and also had uh, an economic interest in downplaying the results of, uh, of or the damages caused by these earthquakes, of course. They gave a, a joint statement uh, saying that um, uh, uh, the report was an important milestone which needs to be studied closely. So again, we need to study these 2,000 pages with conclusions we know we already know mm. um, but both and both were criticized in the report alongside the government for failing to take the concerns of locals seriously and for putting profit above people um, the people of Groningen carried a great deal of the disadvantages of the gas extraction but only a few of the benefits uh, that was a little bit of an open door mm. by Shell Nederlands president Marianne van Loon uh, in her reaction and um, the NOS also interviewed a lot of people in Groningen who were invited for the presentation of the report uh, and their uh, general reaction was I think you can summarize as um, yeah we don't have any confidence in anything uh, we don't have confidence that things are going to change any anytime soon but at least we're happy that our situation is finally finally acknowledged and uh, we are finally uh, being taken serious and that was that was uh, I think um, uh, 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 in a nutshell uh, the reactions of the people of Groningen yeah and uh, you know understandably I think guess uh, they're effectively saying or well, believe it when they see it because one of the things that has dragged on as well as the recognition of the damage caused by the earthquakes is the actual compens- payout of compensation which has been very slow it's been um, stalled at every turn really by the NAM which is the um, the, the company that uh, the joint venture by Shell and Exxon uh, that actually Operates uh, um, uh, operates the gas drilling. Uh, they, they've uh, you know, constantly sort of the burden of proof originally was on the residents to show that the damage to their homes was caused by uh, uh, yeah was caused by the gas extraction. Um, it took forever for it took a very long time for, in many cases for um, the. Um, uh, for the NEM to, to to accept responsibility and then to organise compensation payments, the compensation funds were often capped by the government. They only limited the amount, total amount that could be paid out. So you had situations like this time, round about this time last year, there was a whole queue outside local government offices in Kronia because they were told there was only a fixed amount of um, uh, compensation available, and it was first come, first served. So, you know, at every turn, really, I mean, there's been efforts to kind of stall, slow down, downplay and limit uh, the liability. And I think one very clear message has come out of the support is that, uh, you know, there can be no more limits, basically, on compensation. That basically, yeah. this is, you know, the, 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 the government and the companies are, uh, you know, are responsible here for the damage to people's homes and to their livelihoods. And they need to be um, given proper, adequate compensation. Yeah, because yeah, eighty-five thousand buildings and homes have been damaged uh, at least once uh, as as a result of the earthquakes. Uh, but to yeah. date, only thirty percent of these homes have been made safe again. Some of them are in uh, declared uh, uninhabitable, right? So uh, yeah. uh, and so some people are still living in these houses. So um, um, enormous problems, and seventy um, uh, percent of the budget that is allocated to compensation for the Groningen homes are, are spent on bureaucracy just to show how enormous this this 
this uh, this this bureaucratic monster is yeah. and how little money actually is going to the people who who need it um and um now a group of Groningen officials uh, have teamed up and uh, <laughs> including um who do you think uh, is part of this group of people, Gordon? <laughs> could it be? Could it be uh, the plumber from Kroninger, by any chance? Yes, Mr. Stickstoff, jo- Johan Remkes, Mr. Mr. <laughs> Formation, uh, Johan Remkes. Uh, he, uh, I think he is uh, the commissaris van de coding. I think he is the governor of the province. I'm not entirely sure. Doesn't mm. matter. But he um, uh, has been uh, speaking out alongside, uh, for example, the mayor of Groningen. Uh, which is, of course, also a city, not only a province. Hmm. But they are saying that, uh, yeah, they are calling on the government to finally streamline uh, this uh, 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 scheme of, of reinforcement and rep- reparation and compensation because, you know, it's just taking too long. And um, they finally want uh, things to, to be improved. And they are also calling on the government to provide additional support to the province uh, as a whole. Uh, for the next 25 years, they want extra investments in, for example, education, in the energy transition, and also in infrastructure. Um, basically, I think this is, uh, they want this because a lot of the money that was made with the gas extraction didn't end up in Groningen, of course. They went to the rest of the country, especially the Randstad and the West. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they finally want Groningen also to profit from um, the gas extraction, uh, 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 which, you know, uh, they are now suffering from. Yeah, because I know another figure that uh, Remkes came out with um, mentioned in his response, cause he, he, also, he, uh, he was a person I saw that, uh, came, that, that mentioned this 70% figure, that 70% of the budget has gone on, you know, actually just the cost of administering the compensation. He also said that only 1% of the profits from the Groningen gas fields actually were spent in Groningen. Mm, yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's a huge yeah, bone of contention as well for local people there who had all of the yeah, suffered all the um, damage and inconvenience and had almost seen almost no direct benefit themselves. Yeah. A painting of a peasant woman by Vincent van Gogh has been sold at auction for five and a half million euros, more than double its estimate. The portrait of Gordina de Groot, known as Sien, had been in a private family collection for 120 years before being auctioned at Christie's in London on Tuesday. It was one of a series of portraits van Gogh painted while staying with his parents in Nunen in Brabant, and Sien de Groot would go on to feature in his best-known work from that period, The Potato Eaters. Yeah, and if you uh, have watched uh, Band of Brothers uh, on HBO, uh, there yeah. is a uh, American soldier who famously claims that Van Gogh was born in Nunen in Brabant, which is untrue. Yeah. He was born in Zundert, which is near <laughs> my hometown, so uh, Much in the important. west of Brabant, not yeah. in the east. So uh, um, there's a little bit of uh, chauvinism here. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah, a little bit of Van, Van Gogh trivia here. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, and there were also rumors in the rest of the community that the relationship between Vincent and Sien were closer than uh, painter and model, right? Yeah, this little painting has a co- little bit of juice here. A <laughs> little bit of juice, juice. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. This is a re- this painting has a really kind of juicy history. Um, and one of the things is that Sien de Groot was 30 years old or nearly 30 at the time that this uh, portrait was painted, but she sat around 20 times altogether for Van mm. Gogh. And uh, there are several uh, portraits of her uh, in ex- uh, still survived. Uh, she was also the only one of the, the peasants he named that he named in his letters to his brother Theo and uh, oh. 
And that's basically because in September 1885, Vincent wrote that he'd been having a great deal of trouble with the reverend gentleman of the priesthood. Um, basically, there was a huge uh, local scandal brewing uh, that uh, perhaps uh, he and seen to quote uh, his favourite subject was um, yeah his favourite subject not just uh, uh, with the paintbrush. And a month later, these rumours grew stronger when the unmarried seen to quote gave birth to a son. Uh, in the meantime, Van Gogh had uh, scarpered and left town. He vehemently denied doing anything improper, but he was widely believed uh, by many people in the community to be the father. It was only in 2021 when a DNA study was done comparing relatives of Vincent uh, van Gogh and Sien de Groot, uh, that the rumours were definitively disproved. Ah, van Gogh okay. himself said that Sien had told him that her cousin was a real father, so perhaps the rumours were a smokescreen for another more kind of closer-to-home scandal uh, of good old-fashioned <laughs> Brabant incest. But uh, <laughs> the Christie's catalogue did uh, comment that the portrait shows a particular tenderness between artist and sitter evident in the potency of her stare. Uh-huh. Okay, yes. Uh, well, um, just the fact that this painting has been in the family for so long, right? Um, yeah. Is also a hint, I think, because, yeah, if you own a Van Gogh painting, uh, or at least maybe it's my, my, my um, you know, money-making genes, uh, my <laughs> Dutch money-making genes speaking here, I don't know, but I would have sold it uh, a long time ago, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, this but is it, 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 this is a rich banker's family who've moved to Switzerland. Uh, I think it wasn't a family piece. Okay, it wasn't a family piece. No, uh, it was it was actually bought by um, uh, a, a banker in the Hague, uh, Henry Dundell Pearson, uh, whose family went on to uh, then uh, uh, was absorbed. His, his local bank was absorbed into Abian Amro, and uh, that made his family uh-huh. very rich. So they didn't, and uh, yeah, they, they currently live in Switzerland. Um, which is also uh, where a lot of uh, Dutch art ended up in the 20th century, but uh, in, by, by other means. But this painting originally had an interesting history because um, it was in a batch of 40 that Van Gogh actually left in a crate when he moved uh, from Nunen to Antwerp. Uh, and it was picked up by a local carpenter who sold them for one guilder to a scrap <laughs> merchant in Breda. And he sold them on to an art dealer in Rotterdam called Christian Oldenzaal, and he spotted the painting's potential, and he sold it in 1903 to Henry Daniel Pearson. And it's stayed in his family ever since, so it's not been yeah, seen, basically, in public yeah. um, and until it was uh, put up for sale in Christie's. Fascinating, yeah. yes. Uh, yeah, and... Uh just to think that a Van Gogh, that you could have sold a Van Gogh painting for one guilder well, 40 uh, a piece. forty Van Gogh paintings. Oh, oh, forty. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. even one guilder uh, a piece. Okay, well, yeah. that that is just probably the best investment since the Dutch bought uh, Manhattan for twenty-four dollars. <laughs> yeah. So the new new owner is an unnamed British buyer um, who is going to have great fun uh, uh, telling people that he now owns a painting of Gordina van der Goot by Vincent van Gogh. As <laughs> yes, he first has to manage to. Get it through customs, I think. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, good luck to him. Yeah. Maybe you can sell it for a bunch of tomatoes. Uh, <laughs> yes, probably. Yeah, paint paint tomatoes. And do do we think that in in Britain we're going to have a tomato bubble like we had with the uh, tulip? Uh, with the tulips. Yeah, could, yeah. Well, there aren't any tomatoes to, to, to bubble, basically. But people probably commission paintings of tomatoes, you know, in the way, in the way they did. You know, when <laughs> yeah. tulips got too expensive to buy, that's why I, why yeah. I end up with a lot of still lifes in that period of Dutch art because ah. you know people actually because they couldn't afford a real tulip, they asked someone to paint a bunch of flowers for them. 
So we'll see paintings of tomatoes and courgettes and cucumbers selling Pop for, up selling in, for uh, in Britain. Yeah, 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 and sell for millions at Christie's in a century's time. Yeah, and people say, why are there so many paintings of fruit in British <laughs> <Yeah>. homes? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, and in one and half years, it, 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 there was a British painter who had a favorite tomato, which he painted over 20 times, and uh, he probably had yeah. an affair with it. <laughs> I think that's a good time to draw a veil on this story. Yes, I think so too. Much as we love bringing you these digests of the latest news, politics, art, sales, and the obit of sport, it does cost us time and money, and every small contribution is gratefully received. We'll give you a shout out by way of thanks as well as the opportunity to ask us a question and you get the chance to listen to all our premium content like our history special months before anyone else. So if you'd like to become a sponsor of the Dutch News Podcast and have your name in lights, well, a mumbled apologetically <laughs> midway through an episode was almost as good, log on to www.patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Dutch News the uh, annual rate of inflation uh, rose slightly to 8% in February, according to a flash estimate by the national statistics agency CBS on Thursday. I never knew they did flash estimates, uh, yeah. to be honest. No, they always kind of revise it after about a week, but that oh, never okay. makes it. It's always a flash estimate that makes the headlines. All right, I never knew. In January, inflation had fallen to 7.6%. So, yeah, it's uh, now slightly up from that. Uh, food, beverages and tobacco are now 15.1% more expensive than they were a year ago, while energy is actually 1.1% cheaper, the CBS said. The CBS is also planning to change the way it calculates energy charges to reflect actual prices rather than new contracts, and that will uh, come into effect in June. So, yeah, we're going to have to wait uh, to see the effect of that uh, uh, for a couple of months. And also calculated according to European methods, which doesn't include the cost of rental housing like the Dutch system. Inflation hit 8.9% in February, up from 8.4% in January. And the finalized February inflation figures will be published later this month and actually the uh, cbs have sort of um, given a preview of this new calculation method they're going to use and uh, the basic fault with it and i, I have to credit matthias bauman on uh, newsio for explaining this uh, to me <laughs> <laughs> the basic flaw with the method was that when they calculated people's energy contracts it was based on the cost of a new contract so it basically assumed that everybody was going to change their energy supply every single month now obviously last year mm. fixed rate contracts disappeared because the price was going up so fast that there was no incentive for uh, energy companies to offer them so everyone was on variable contracts that kept going up but the reality was of course about half of people were on old fixed rate contracts so the price yeah. they were paying was a fraction of what was being calculated by the cbs oh, and when they actually okay. redid the calculations and they, they're officially going to bring this method in in june as you say but they have kind of gone back over last year's figures and kind of recalculated them and they discovered that the peak of inflation wasn't 14 percent which is what the headline rate was back in september but around about half that it was about sort of eight percent i think eight somewhere between eight and nine oh, okay. percent yeah. It's made a huge difference. But of course, these inflation figures that we had in the summer, these double-digit inflation figures, have been used as the basis for things like um, wage demands by the trade unions. So yes. that in itself, now that energy prices have cooled off quite a lot substantially, food prices are going up, but also, of course, wages are going up. And that is now driving, you know, is one of the reasons that we still have to sustain high energy levels. So this kind of flawed calculation method by CBS has actually quite a lot to answer for. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it disrupts uh, a lot, if you yeah. think, uh, yeah, a little bit longer about a bit um yeah if, if you think the inflation is twice as high as it really is uh, for most yeah. people and obviously some people were coming off fixed rate of contracts and having to 
sign up for new variable rate contracts and having no choice and they were you know their energy bills really were going up three or four times so we shouldn't dismiss that but actually the overall effect was much smaller than the sabs assumed it was yes and speaking of energy companies we've got uh, shock news that they're actually fairly fair and reliable Yes, we were shocked, shocked (laughs) to find that out. Yeah, Uh, yeah, the Dutch Consumer and Markets Authority, ACM, said on Wednesday that the big three energy suppliers in the Netherlands are currently not charging unreasonable fees for gas and electricity. The profit the three are making now is not higher than in recent years, and the high prices uh, consumers are facing are down to the cost of buying in gas and electricity. And the companies also have to pay more to insure themselves against developments on the turbulent market, which doesn't transfer into higher prices for consumers and the ACM will investigate smaller energy companies in the coming weeks so we will know if the smaller energy companies are also as reliable as the major three but I think 60% of something of people in the Netherlands have a contract with these major three companies. Yeah, at the moment uh, there's a lot of talk about why energy bills aren't coming down when the wholesale prices have come down. But the gas companies they they, they buy in advance, they buy ahead on the yeah. futures market. And also, I mean, last summer gas prices went up from so two years ago they were paying like sort of seventeen uh, euros or twenty to twenty five euros per megawatt hour, and by last August that was up to three hundred and fifty. But your energy bill did not go up ten times. Right, no. because of the way no. they spread the cost. But the flip side of that is that now, when the pulse prices are coming down, it will take time for that to feed through into the domestic bills. But the rates are coming down. I mean, I think my gas provider has cut its rates for April to something that's actually quite close to the government's cap rate. And of course, because the government's capped energy prices, people aren't actually paying very much more upfront for the gas and electricity, even with these very high rates. So that's gas bills. Another thing that is going up, or has been going up very rapidly, is house prices, which means that municipalities are asking for much more in their VOZ tax. The, the tax on property values but they're not happy with the fact that more people are protesting against it yeah the way that valuations are currently dropping through letterboxes all over the country and uh, yeah they are based on the property prices in january 2022 and the yeah awkward thing is that that was the moment that housing prices were at their peak so that means that uh, yeah the valuations are also probably a little bit too high and uh, another problem is that these valuations are used in calculating various other taxes relating to home ownership as well as local authorities' levies and also water usage. And I just got the bill from the water board, which yeah. we will vote on uh, next month. And yeah, that is also based on the VOZ value. So yeah, it is uh, in your interest to keep your VOZ value as low as possible. And for that, people are often uh, not uh, protesting the estimation themselves, but they take specialized companies uh, into their hands uh, but municipalities are now asking uh, people to not do that because it costs them too much money mm. <laughs> uh, how does that work uh, I really didn't understand this but apparently local authorities have to pay specialized agencies procedural costs when they issue a protest and that money would be better spent on local services to municipalities say so yeah and if a private citizen does it himself individually then uh, these costs uh, yeah, apparently do not exist. So yeah, that is uh, <laughs> the municipalities. It is in their interest uh, for people to just uh, do their own work. I think municipalities such as Deventer, Arnhem, Halle, Meenblik, and Zwolle are among the towns urging their residents to protest themselves. Fifty-one percent of requests for a lower valuation were processed uh, through an outside agency last year. So over half of the people mm. don't do it themselves. And on average, forty percent of the protests succeed, resulting in valuations going down by an average of 9%. But 
I am curious what the success rate of an individual protest is versus uh, one yeah. done by an outside agency. They didn't communicate that success rate. So uh, that says probably says a lot uh, <laughs> about how well these companies are doing that. Yeah, and is the implication here not as well that if you do bring in an outside agency, then the council is, is obliged or feels obliged to actually get a more professional analysis done. And that sort of suggests that you know, you're more likely to be, one, be successful and also get a more favorable valuation. So so, you know, the council want you to protest yourself because you know, they're more likely to feel more confident that uh, if you're giving, if you're bringing up uh, private personal protests, that they'll find it easier to either reject your claim or offer you uh, a much less, you know, generous discount on your VOZ value. It would seem to me. Yes. And also because you see a lot of companies now are actually you know, have sprung up to handle these uh, these appeals, and you see lots of adverts for them as well. So and it's not really a surprise when property prices go up by that much, and you have this appeal system that this sort of claims farming on a uh, no win no fee basis it is going to arise i think the councils are just going to have to put up with it yeah, and uh, i also have to mention that VOZ values uh, have risen by an average of 17 percent last year uh, on average in the country but the increase can be as much as 22 percent in amsterdam for example and uh, homeowners have six weeks to make a formal complaint about the valuation so get writing be quick Oh, and you can also you can also do your belasting aangiften now, right? From starting from March first. Yeah. Uh, I think the DigiD system, the digital systems, uh, have been overburdened uh, <laughs> for for days now because for some reason uh, the Dutch love to do it uh, as soon as possible. So yeah, but you're probably going to have to wait uh, until you can uh, do your taxes. Uh, yeah, I think NOS said the first tax return this year was received 59 seconds after the window opened, you know. <laughs> in, in other countries, you have like sort of transfer deadline day on football, right, where everyone's really excited about the, the, the transfer deadline. I think, I don't know any other country where people actually get really excited about being able to file their tax returns. There'd be a big sort of big scrum to do it. You know. Yeah, they just want to know how much money they will uh, uh, get back from the t- tax office. But it is a national sport, yeah. But it's, it's a national tradition, right? So on the 1st of March, yeah. every year, they, they open the window uh, for people to submit their tax returns. And within about six hours later, they announce the system's crashed. So it comes down every year. Only one place to start the sports roundup this week, and that's the former fishing village of Spakenburg in Utrecht province, <laughs> because this week the second division club knocked Utrecht out of the Dutch Cup to become only the third amateur side to reach the semi-finals. And they didn't just win, they did it in style, by four goals to one in the Eredivisie team's Halkenwaard Stadium. And to put that in context, it's Utrecht's second biggest defeat of the whole season, and it's their heaviest home loss for more than three years. So a real achievement by um, the plucky amateurs of Spakenburg. Willemo Fink set the ball rolling. So there's some great names in this as well. There's, uh, there's so <laughs> much to enjoy. Willemo Fink <laughs> set the ball rolling in the 12th minute with a very fine volley. Uh, Luke Admiral slid home a second after 59 minutes. And though FC Utrecht briefly threatened a comeback when Anastasios Duvikas pulled one back five minutes later, two more goals by Massis Artin and Florian van der Linden extinguished their hopes and sent Spakenburg into raptures. <laughs> And by reaching the semi-finals, Spakenburg emulated the feat of their fierce local rivals, Eiselmeer Vogels, who did the same thing in 1975. And there's lots of, lots of coverage this week sort of focused on the big rivalry between Spakenburg, who play in blue, and Eiselmeer Vogels, who play in red. Finally. Yes. So they have a huge local derby every year between the reds and the blues. And now they have finally reached the same level, I think, right? Because yeah. they have finally beaten their main rival in this national uh, national tournament. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's also chats about the Eiselmeer Vogels were saying, look, 
look great. In 1975, amateur clubs were really amateur, whereas these days they actually train and that sort of thing. Uh, but Spackenburg said, no, no, hang on a second, because we beat Utrecht 4-1 in their stadium, uh, whereas uh, yeah. you won 2-1. So it wasn't it wasn't as impressive. So a new rivalry who had the bigger achievements. <laughs> who yeah. had the bigger win, exactly, yeah. Their opponents now will be either Feyenoord, PSV, Eindhoven or Ajax after the Eredivisie top three all came through their semifinals this week. But if they get to the final, there is a potential spanner in the works. Oh. Can you guess what it is? Is it the date? The, yeah, it's the day of the week because yeah. um, the Canfe Bay Baker final is uh, scheduled to be played on a Sunday in April. Ooh. But Spakenburg is in the Bible Belt. So yes. they don't play football on Sundays. They're specifically a Saturday afternoon uh, village team. So, And they were, when they were asked if the club would waver from its religious principles, the chairman, Max Honebeek, uttered the Dutch dread phrase, Nee, dat is niet mogelijk. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the Canfe Bay have now said they will sit down with the four semi-final clubs and uh, look at the situation to see if they need to, yeah, d to arrange a provisional alternative date for the cup final. But I guess they will be saying their prayers every day in Zeist that Spakenburg get knocked out in the next round. Yes, and uh, yeah, there's also been some less interesting football news, right? Yeah, because uh, the Eredivisie with FC Utrecht and all the rest is still rumbling on. Feyenoord stay three points clear of Ajax after they both won at the weekend. Taventa. Uh, are now out of it really after they lost to PSV so we're down to four contenders Cambuur are four points adrift of Groningen at the bottom Groningen had their first win in 11 matches and the top fixture of this weekend sees Inform AKC Valveik play host to PSV in a North Brabant derby Okay, something to look forward to. And over in Bahrain, uh, Max Verstappen is revving his engine for the start of the Formula One season, right? Yes, uh, Verstappen will start the season as the overwhelming favourite to win a third successive World Championship title. And since he's only 25 years old, he could dominate the sport for years to come. His nearest rivals are likely to be the Ferrari duo of Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz. Like last year? Like last year, exactly. Yeah. Mercedes, uh, the team of Lewis Hamilton and uh, George Russell are still struggling to fix their problems. Former champion Fernando Alonso has been sort of mentioned as a dark horse, not to win the title, but maybe to win a couple of races uh, after he's moved to Aston Martin, even though he's 41 years old and hasn't won a race since 2013. So that might uh, make things a little more interesting. Uh, it's going to be the longest Formula One season uh, in history this mm. year. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of uh, F1 watchers are thinking it's going to feel like it as well, because it'll just be another. <laughs> procession of Verstappen wins yes yeah hopefully it will be a little bit more competitive than last year because yeah, yeah last year it's, uh, I think it was almost halfway the season it was already clear that Verstappen was going to win the world championship and it's just uh, more fun if you if there is a little bit more competitiveness I, I mean I don't it doesn't have to be like it, <laughs> like it was in 2021 that was a little bit too crazy I a little think, bit too but, much uh, maybe yeah yeah a bit yes. too much with the, with the last lap drama with uh, Lewis Hamilton although it was great yeah. fun to watch but yeah something in between those two polarities uh, is what we're looking for. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But Max Verstappen is not the only orange driver who's going to start in Bahrain, right? No, the whole sea of orange-clad fans will have two drivers to cheer on this season because uh, Nick de Vries is uh, making his debut for Alfa Tauri this weekend. And uh, amusingly, Nick de Vries is, uh, says uh, he looks up to Max Verstappen as an older brother, even though he's actually three <laughs> years older than Verstappen. He's 28. And he says that uh, Bahrain is going to be a tough race, uh, but he hopes that he'll pick up some points later in the season on other circuits that his car is better suited 
needed to. Yeah, I think Nick de Vries is probably the most prepped Formula One driver ever because he has been a uh, reserve driver for, I think, three teams or something. He has already driven laps for four teams right now. Uh, so oh, this is going to be his fourth team. So uh, yeah. he has the uh, questionable record of uh, having the most teams before he even started uh, uh, his Formula One career officially. Yeah, the most experienced F1 driver who's never actually taken part in a race. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Leiden University's Botanical Garden has the Dutch premiere of not one but two rare penis plants in bloom, <laughs> with the largest of the uh, Amorphophallus gigas standing proud at over three meters tall. It's just a great uh, Latin name, that isn't it? Amorphophallus. Yeah, <laughs> it, it just says everything, right? Amorphophallus gigas. Yeah, it, yeah, it <laughs> says everything you need yeah. to know. There are three species of penis plants, all three of which have now bloomed in the Leiden Hortus. In October last year, Leiden hit international headlines when the Amorphophallus Desus Silvae <laughs> bloomed in Europe for the first time in over 20 years, while last summer two specimens of the Amorphophallus Titanum, which is also a great name, <laughs> were in even stiff... better name, yeah, yeah. Yes, and those were in stiff competition. They were blooming at the same time. Um, the credit of the burgeoning penis plants is down to garden volunteer Rutmer Posma, who is the botanical garden's expert on penis plants. He mm. is knowledgeable about soil compounds and when to repot the plants. Do you think these soil compounds involve uh, blue pills, perhaps, or not? Yeah, maybe we can crush some little tablets into the soil again, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's also an expert on the type of compost... Uh, the plants need to stimulate growth. Mm. Um, the Botanical Garden, which dates from 1590 and is the oldest in the country, will be open all week to give as many visitors as possible a peep at the penis plants. And the plants give off a terrible stench of decaying flesh, uh, so masks uh, are advised. <laughs> yeah, well, luckily everyone's got a whole stock of uh, unused masks in a, in a <laughs> drawer somewhere, so that's that's not going to be a problem. I know I have them. I, I just <laughs> used the last piece of my stock of self-tests, uh, so uh, right. I, I, I ran out of those, but... I still have a lot of masks yeah. somewhere lying around. Yeah, I'm sure there's uh, someone's going to come up with a conspiracy about how Pfizer, the company uh, behind both the uh, Viagra and the vaccines, has now created a situation where people have to wear masks. Yeah. This cannot be a coincidence, right? <laughs> no, no, it's a conspiracy by yeah. the World Economic Fallers. Yeah, and almost certainly Sieber van der Linden has, uh, has got a hand in this as well. Yeah, he's a big dick, so yeah, who knows? <laughs> exactly. That's all we have for you this week. Oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> God yeah. yeah. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include in links to everything we've talked about today, including... Everything, pic- really? Including the Do penis plants, to? yes, okay, in the liner notes, yeah. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout-out on the podcast. My thanks to Bell Peters, I'm Gordon Derrick, and we will be back next week with our local elections special. Assuming I survive my illness. Assuming that uh, yeah, you don't uh, come down with uh, some kind of fever and start uh, giving off a terrible stench of decaying flesh. <laughs> So stay away from Leiden, please. And help us to keep making these podcasts. But if much we love... Oh dear. Because I'm dead. <laughs> I should have warned you though, sorry. <laughs>